welcome to this edition of Talking HR with Lori and Lisa, where as always our goal is to give you a real look at today's HR world through the sharing of experiences, knowledge, and inspiring people from practices. I'm your host, Lisa Fuller. And I'm Lisa's co-host, Lori Rilkoff. Our guest today is making her second appearance on our podcast, and we are so lucky she's here with us again, bringing her experience as a laborer employment and human rights lawyer, mediator, and arbitrator. In Marley's last visit, uh, she shared with us her book, The Mirror Method, which explains how day-to-day leadership, interpersonal dynamics, and communication affects the overall health, focus, and productivity of the workforce, and provides practical action steps for leaders to address workplace dysfunction. That's a lot. And we're really, really happy to have her back today. to talk about her new book, Walking on Eggshells, A Practical Guide to Resolving Conflict at Work and Home, or as we'll call it, The Guide. Uh, We had such a great response to your last guest appearance with us, Marley Rusin. So we are really looking forward to hearing more about your new book. Well, thank you. Well, I'm very happy to be on your show a second time. It was a lot of fun last time, and I imagine it will be similarly enjoyable this time. Okay, well, let's get going. Uh, Marley, uh, can you talk about your experiences? Um, well, you wrote about in your book, which I really enjoyed reading, uh, about your ex- how your experience as a mediator led you to write the book. Can you share some of those experiences? Absolutely. So particularly as a mediator, I am given the privilege and opportunity to observe conversations happening in the moment. And I also have the opportunity to speak to each of the parties independently and individually. And it's interesting to see what happens when we bring them together and they are unable to effectively communicate their interests and their concerns and their desires in a way that the other person can hear them. So I'll I'll break that down into a couple of different dynamics that I continue to witness in mediation, um, increasingly lately, by the way. So the first one is that people come forward and they're coming forward with with legitimate concerns from their perspective, um, a very intense experience that they wanna share. They aren't making it up, right? Very, very few people I've met in my 30 years of doing this now are malicious or vindictive. Um, But the way in which they describe their experiences to the other person often causes that other person to feel attacked. So it's either the words they use to describe the person, the other person, you always, or you never, or in addition to simply describing the behaviors that upset them or the statement that upset them, they then attach a diagnosis to that. You do this, so you must be that. You said this, so I'm sure you're that. So they, they, they add on um, unnecessary and inflammatory editorials to whatever their experience is, thus alienating the person on the other end. Now, sometimes they choose words that are quite respectful, but their delivery gets in their way. So they, they come across as self-righteous, um, as very judgmental and accusatory, um, as condescending, as sarcastic or as abrasive. Now, sometimes their tone is okay, but their demeanor and their facial expressions and their hands, all of which are communication tools, are incredibly um, undermining and sometimes uh, create fear in the person who is receiving the message. 
So while their concern is legitimate and they really truly want the other person to hear them, they come across in a way that causes the other person to feel attacked. That makes the other person go on the defensive and that other person then shuts down entirely. They're like fight or flight, fear-based, I got to get out of here, or they counterattack. Oh yeah? And then we get them engaged in uh, similarly disrespectful behavior. So that's that's the first dynamic where I thought, oh my goodness, um, it's really not the conflict or the concern that is causing this discussion to break down. It's the way in which the concerns are being presented. Well, you did, Marley, you did talk sorry. about in your book the, you know, it's important for people to know about potential responses and reactions right. that can occur when someone is being accused of being disrespectful or dysfunctional. What right. is the most common response or reaction that you've seen in your work with organizations? Well, you know, I don't, I don't think there is a one size fits all approach to that. I, I mean, really, the most common response would really often mirror how the initial concern was. Re- Relayed and how safe the other person feels in in responding. Um, I will tell you, common responses. Maybe mm-hmm. not the most common. Common responses are, you know, I I did say that or I, I did do that, but here's why. And then they turn the discussion into an explanation of the circumstances that they were under. I did it because I'm really stressed at work. Um, I did it because I'm really passionate about that. I did it because um, I I wasn't taught how to do this properly when I was five. So they accept to some degree the fact that they did something, but then they they try to excuse inexcusable behavior. Now, sometimes you can say that in a way that sounds more like an explanation and a context, but sometimes the way it's used is more like, well, yeah, I did that, but here's my excuse for why. And it really puts the other person off because it feels like uh, their concerns are being dismissed. And sometimes it even makes them feel guilty for having raised a concern. So, you know, you you shamed me in a meeting and you cut me off and you interrupted me. Oh, you know what? I did do that. I'm going through a terrible divorce. I have a prolonged custody battle. I'm in over my head. I, I don't know what to do. And then this other person doesn't know what to do with that information because that is a horrible situation. Yet does that mean they're supposed to allow somebody to violate their boundaries? Of course not. So then how do they navigate through that? And it sometimes feels like it's deflection. I don't really see it that way. I, I see it that people kind of panic and they, they want to explain why they're doing what they're doing and they're not really sure what the next steps might look like. Um, so now they have a custody battle, they're going through a terrible divorce and now somebody at work is mad at them. Like, so from their perspective, it's just one more thing. And then we go kaboosh um, and, it, and, it, and, and, it, and, we, and we typically don't um, give people tools on how to navigate that when that happens. I'm curious, Marley, just to build on the communication piece a little bit. Have you seen, um, an increase in conflict or how people are addressing that communication and those approaches now that we're in a hybrid working environment? Well, you know, yes, yes and no. I, you know, a lot of people thought that it would go away, that, you know, the more that we worked virtually or remotely, that some of the uh, workplace disputes and conflict and, and dysfunction would disappear. And I would say it's just easier to hide. And I would say the conflict and the dysfunction um, perhaps happens more passively. So for example, um, 
I would have a situation with a staff meeting where you have a, a certain posse of people who hang out together because they all share the same opinion, they have the same worldviews, and so it feels like they other the, the rest of the people in the staff meeting. And so when somebody goes to challenge um, their viewpoint or to raise a different way of doing things or looking at the world in a in a um, in person setting, we would often have people whispering, we would have people um, passing notes, very distracting and disruptive, uh, subtle behaviors that really send a message to the person speaking, we're not listening to you, we don't value your opinion, we're dismissing it, we can't wait for our turn to speak. So now we transition to the remote um, world where we have a lot of remote meetings and the complaints that I'm hearing are that while they are on the virtual meeting, they are texting each other, the same posses. They are turning their cameras off only when certain people speak. Um, on the camera, their faces, are, our eyes are rolling, um, smirking, laughing, purposely looking as if they're multitasking. So, you know, I think if people are going to be in conflict with each other, if people um, don't know how to develop skills to tolerate and accept and consider alternate viewpoints that will manifest in the office whether the office is virtual or remote so no I don't think I haven't seen a decrease I've seen perhaps a, a different way in which the dysfunction is manifesting. Marta your new um, book the guide um, you you have it uh, you've approached it in a way where you're giving some guidance for resolving conflict at work and home, or at least outside the workplace. And you include it in these sections of the guide uh, called Taking It Home. Why did you decide to take that approach with this book? So here's the thing. Conflicts and disagreement are part of the human condition. They're, they're not a workplace issue per se. Um, they're only a workplace issue because human beings happen to be there. If there were just machines and software, I don't think I'd be called in for a lot of mediations. And so I think we have to appreciate that we are humans first, and then we are our work roles, our professional roles second. And that, you know, quite frankly, in some ways, conflict management at home is far more challenging than at work, given our emotional attachment to those involved and our really intense desire for wanting a happy ending. I don't know if we necessarily have that level of commitment um, or emotional attachment to the workplace. Having said that, both, both places are systems. So you've got workplaces that are systems and homes that are systems, and they will either succeed or fail based on how those involved with each other interact, relate, and care for each other. So no relationship is fractured because of the conflict. It, is, it becomes damaged and people become damaged because those around them are not skilled at navigating through or resolving the conflicts that just naturally arise when you have human beings interacting with each other. And then finally, here's the, here's the reality of it all. When people are in conflict and trauma at home, they don't bring their best selves to work. And in fact, they engage in something that I call presenteeism. They are there, they, they are not on their A, A game, they are distracted, they are, you know, just pretty much going through the motions because, because they are really in an unhealthy state from mismanaged or avoided conflict at home. So we, we don't have 
the, the, you know, the, the best employees when we don't help supporting them with issues at home. And conversely, when we don't commit to resolving conflicts at the workplace that need to be resolved at the, at the workplace, our employees and our leaders are taking those home with them. And then that starts to inform the relationships that, that they have at home, and then they start to have conflict at home. So they feed on each other. And so if we commit to healthy relationships at both places, you're going to have stronger systems in both locations. I really want to get into the part of the book where you're talking about your mirror method and how that comes into play uh, with the conflict resolution um, guidance that you're providing. Can you give us, our, our listeners, a, you know, a description of what you covered in the mirror method, which was your first book? So, so the so the mirror method is a six step to uh, sorry is a six step tool that I created for leaders to be able to inquire into either interpersonal conflict or uh, disruptive or disrespectful individuals a way to inquire into it. Um, be objective in terms of its resolution, like all of those things for leaders when they are faced with conflict. This book, Walking on Eggshells, was created for two reasons. First of all, leaders are asking more and more for support for the day-to-day -day conversations that might avoid the need for the pretty intense inquiry and review that comes with the mirror method when conflicts haven't been resolved or behavior hasn't been held accountable. So supervisors and managers throughout my practice are saying, you know, we know there are conversations that we need to have and we're not having them because we don't really know how. We haven't been given the training or the skills. So that's the first. The second thing that I heard was that staff, employees, individuals were buying the mirror method because the mirror method does have a lot of um, communication practices, tips and tricks and all of that. So. I was seeing that employees were sort of scavenging through it, not for the leadership um, information, but for the how to communicate. So this walking on eggshells guide is really for everybody. It's for everybody who wants to learn how to have a better conversation regarding conversations they know they need to have with other people. Now, the reason why I use the term mirror um, is that it's really critical for all of us to make sure that we engage in a practice of self-reflection and a reflective practice with other people as part of having healthy and constructive conversations. I always tell people, before you get busy trying to have a conversation with someone else, you better start having more conversations with yourself. You need to really think back and say, okay, so I know I was really upset with that person yesterday. And uh, I, I know I'm steamed, right? We have all these emotional labels we attach to it. And then we, we, uh, we get all mad, right? We're all frustrated. But we have to unpack that so that we can come up with a description of what happened that will serve a utility for the other person. So you don't go to them with, some emotional description of what they did to you and how you felt about it. Instead, you need to engage in self-reflection and say, so what was it about that conversation we had that upset me? Was it what they said? Was it how they said it? Was it the fact that they said it in front of other people? Was it the tone they used? 
Was it the fact that they were asking me questions that were really none of their business? Like, so it's not enough to say, boy, I was really mad at that person. Gosh, they were so disrespectful. Oh, not helpful. Engage in a conversation with yourself to say, no, what about it didn't work for you? And then ask yourself, listen, if the same scenario happens next week, how would you want them to show up differently for you? Like be granular, be specific. I always say to people, make sure you give them your answer key in terms of what you would have wanted to see differently. And the only way you can do that is by spending some time with yourself and reflecting on the instances in which you were triggered and then figure out why. Because I can assure you that if you have a conversation with someone and say, you were so rude to me yesterday. I just felt you were so dismissive and disengaged. They will absolutely say, what do you mean by that? Give me some examples. What did I say that you think was dismissive? How do you think that I was rude? So people will want you to become more specific with them. And if you don't engage in self-reflection, you won't be able to. So that's the first part. Then you reflect back for them how you see it. Then you have to be open to them reflecting back to you how they see it. And then the final aspect of self-reflection, I would say it's the toughest one for all of us, is when we have to reflect on what they have said about us. We're very confident in being able to speak about others. But when all of a sudden we hear how they saw the situation, well, you know, you think that I was dismissive to you. Well, here's my situation. I asked you three times to bring this information to the meeting and then you didn't and each time that you had an excuse so if I looked exasperated and I sounded impatient is because I don't know what more to do given the many responses and requests I'm given and the fact that it feels like you're not taking my request seriously so they're going to come back at you with a context for why they did what they did and ways in which you might have triggered them and this 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 bookend of this last part of self-reflection is hmm so it doesn't mean I have to give up my perspective, and it doesn't mean my experience with them wasn't a valid one, but it means that my experience with them has to coexist with their experience of me. And in what ways can I adjust the way I show up at the workplace, the way I show up, show up with my partner, the, the tone of voice I use, um, the timing of the conversations I have with them? What can I tweak so that... I can make their experience with me a better one. We're not going to be perfect, but just a better one. I always say, what can all of us do to make next Wednesday better than last Wednesday? And, and, it's, and it's working on this reflective practice um, that really helps that process. That, that makes me think about some of the readings I've been doing with Dare to Lead um, and Brene Brown. And um, the having courageous conversations is one component but I think also is you know before we can sometimes have those courageous conversations we have to understand ourselves especially leading in today's environment where we need to understand and be supportive of our employees and our our families the whole our whole lives right come into the Absolutely. workplace and and that's where a lot of conflict like you said, like somebody doesn't may not know I'm going through a divorce or I'm having this challenge with my child and and it comes in through through our doors or virtual doors of our offices. And um, she talks about, you know, understanding our triggers or the armor um, that we create. And it's interesting once you become aware of that and you 
feel yourself responding to somebody when you feel like, oh, my back's mm -hmm. getting up or, you know, I'm becoming defensive or whatever. So that self-awareness is so important um, in, in this as well. It, it's, we have to look within as well to strengthen the communication and understanding. Right. Um, right. And well. I would say that often we don't take the time to figure out how we get triggered. So all of us get triggered differently. Um, my stomach goes in knots. Uh, some people's back goes up. Um, some people literally feel all tingly. Um, some people's head starts to get flushed and hot or pounding. And I say to people, you know, it's it's really an interesting exercise to just start observing yourself in these situations so that you can better understand how your body reacts when it feels like it's under attack. Whether it's under attack or not, it doesn't matter. At that moment, it's feeling defensive and hurt or embarrassed or ashamed. So what, what what's our body doing? And then the more we get to know our own internal reaction, the quicker we can actually remove ourselves from that situation. Because I don't want people to engage at the time they are triggered. I want them to be able to catch themselves at the time they are triggered so that they can create a space, right, between stimulus and response, what Viktor Frankl talked about. The only way to create a space between stimulus, this is what they're doing to me, and response, how am I going to talk to them about that, is being able to identify our triggers as soon as we can and disengage and recharge by ourselves before re-engaging with them to talk about it. And Mark, like, you, oh, sorry, <laughs> go ahead, Lisa. That's okay. I like the idea you present on the dysfunction spectrum, noting that uh, while all disruptive dysfunction should be resolved, not all dysfunction is the same and not all dysfunction should be treated, discussed and rem remedied, of course, the same. What, what um, do you mean by that? Can you help us understand the types of dysfunctions and Absolutely. how they should be so dealt with? I'm going to kind of break it down into two for you. So the first one is there are really two different types of conflict in the workplace. And I think it's really important that we not conflate them. Um, and that we we understand them and then as leaders we can better diagnose which kind of conflict is going on and that can help us identify what leadership intervention and support is required. So I'll get, the first one that is in the book um, under common forms of dysfunction is task-based conflict. So task-based conflict are usual good faith reasonable day-to-day -day differences of opinion that people have either on a team or, or between teams. And um, not to say they aren't concerns that don't need to be resolved, but to say that, listen, these are healthy people who are generally respectful, but they are having a, a tough time because they're are differences of opinion, there's, there's different work practices, there's different work styles, uh, there's different perceptions and narratives. And I think for task-based conflict, it's critical that we, we see it as something that leaders need to intervene on to support the resolution of the conflict. Not to necessarily get anybody into trouble, not to create a win-lose scenario, but to have a problem-solving mindset and say, okay, so, so what are the concerns around work assignment? What are the concerns around workload? What are your concerns about somebody's um, ability to perform their job effectively or safely? Like, let's, let's make sure that we have a space in which these differences of opinion are allowed to be discussed in a respectful and transparent way. And the leaders are there to support it. So that's 
one type of, of conflict where it really is either between individuals or between teams. And, you know, quite frankly, it, it's between leaders as well. Leaders need to develop some of these conflict management competencies, not only for their teams, but for themselves working with other leaders. The second category is entirely different. So the, the, the second category is relational conflict. And this is where one person on the team is creating conflict and disruption for other people on the team based on the way in which they communicate or don't, and basically the way in which they just show up at the workplace. And so these individuals are very dis disrespectful and disruptive because they really place their needs and interests and opinions and beliefs over everybody else's. And there's many different kinds of disruption. You have people that can be very ag aggressive and overbearing and intimidating. My way or the highway. This is how we're going to do things. My opinion's the right opinion. You know, I recently uh, did a matter and somebody said, well, you know, I believe in verifiable truth and my opinion happens to be that. So this is what we're getting nowadays where people are conflating their opinion on something and seeing it as just an objective truth and objective reality and then bulldozing it through a team meeting or a workplace culture. Another example of this, the flip side of that um, are, are, you know, people that, that the, the persona that I call perfectionist Pat in my, my book where they, they very quietly uh, document and record and complain about people, smile on their face, very quiet in the background, but they are absolutely um, taking notes, taking names, building cases about against people in a, in a way to make them feel better or more in more control, even though often they have no organizational authority. They're getting that authority through the way in which they're showing up. So those are only two examples, but in both of those, it is not a case of interpersonal conflict. It is conflict and disruption that has been caused by somebody in the workplace. And in that situation, leaders are not there to support a resolution of interpersonal conflict. Leaders are there to investigate the situation. And when they find that it is one person causing the disruption, they need to have that person own it through accountability and consequences. And if that person is going through a rough time, then we also can support them through whatever rough time they're going through, through reasonable supports, but not by holding the rest of the team captive. So the first one is the leader supporting a team in trying to air their differences and problem solve. The second one is the leader investigating and having the courage to hold the right people accountable in the right way. And that is where the mirror method um, would really kick in for added tools and support for those leaders. I also really liked your um, scale of offensive behavior. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it really hit home, not just for today's workplace, but for society as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of the workplace, though, how does this make workplace dysfunction in the form of, say, bullying and harassment or disrespectful behavior more challenging to manage and resolve? Right. So this this really links to what I was saying in the last question. Many individuals in the workplace believe that if they feel something or they believe something, then it must be true. So there's, um, and, and I think if they go into social media, they get emboldened, uh, regrettably. So if, if, for example, you have uh, employee A and they're, and they're like, you know what, they say to their supervisor, I feel like you bullied me during my performance review. 
or I feel bullied because I'm not getting the, the, the best kind of work on the team and you're giving it to someone else. And I think you're just bullying me. I, I feel it in my bones. So therefore it must be true. And then the supervisor says right back at them, well, oh yeah, well, guess what? I wasn't bullying you. I know I wasn't bullying you. In my opinion, I wasn't bullying you. And you are misusing that term and you are being offensive and you're the one that's wrong. So one person says, I feel you're wrong. And the other person says, well, I feel you're wrong. And neither of them dictate the outcome of the review. Both of them think they will, because if they do go and do a Google search, someone will say, well, you know, if you feel it, it must be true. But in fact, in law, what someone like me and other workplace investigators and adjudicators do is we say, well, okay, so let's, let's get really specific here. What did the supervisor say? Like what words did they say during the performance review? Um, what's their rationale for the way in which they're assigning work? How did they communicate that out to people? Objectively speaking, can it be justified on the evidence? Is there a good faith, reasonable rationale for doing what they're doing? Or did the way in which they conduct the review or assign the work seem personal, seem like it was being used to isolate people or to target people or to pressure people to leave their team or resign from the company? So the third party says, I get that you feel a certain way and I, and I, and I honor that. And I get that you feel a certain way and I honor that too. However, what I have to determine is what most likely happened between the two of you and in all of the circumstances, objectively speaking, did the supervisor act reasonably? Did the supervisor communicate to the employee reasonably and respectfully? Um, if not, why not? So I, I, you know, I have to go back to an employee sometimes and say, you know, I understand you were hurt. I understand you're really angry. I understand that, you know, you, you're, you're disappointed. But when I look objectively at what the supervisor said and what they did and how they said it, their behavior was aligned with what the expectations are of supervisors nowadays. Or conversely, I'll have to go to a supervisor and say, you know, I get that your leader used to talk to you this way. And I understand that you've, you've, you've experienced as an employee many situations where your boss has used a certain tone with you or has publicly admonished you or, or you know, criticized you. I understand that was your experience and I understand maybe that's why you were led to believe what you did was appropriate. But I have found that you um, gave this feedback publicly. I have found that you used a condescending tone of voice. I found that other people were privy to it. And so even if the content is accurate, I have found that objectively speaking, the way in which you carried out this performance appraisal was inappropriate and constitutes harassment. So really, when we first hear from people and hear all about their feelings, I'm offended. Well, I'm offended, you're offended. We have to go, wow, let's push the pause button and say, let's figure out what happened. And then let's take what happened and see if it aligns with governing standards of acceptable behavior, because those standards change over time. And so we, we have to sort of match it up and see what happens. And then we make our decisions. We do not make a decision about someone's behavior based on somebody else's opinion of it or based on someone else's emotional reaction to it. Their behavior is either acceptable or not in its own right, based on the standards of um, reasonableness that are in place at a given time. That's, that's great. Um, 
guidance and advice and just context, I think, um, as well, Marley. I think it's so important to think of all the possible reasons. And I think ideally, as leaders or as um, employees in the workplace, you don't want to get to that place of a full investigation. So as uh, as we kind of wrap up, is there is there some words of wisdom that you can share for our listeners that's just like how do we how do we start creating a more respectful and healthy workplace that doesn't hopefully result in you know full scale investigations needed because by that time damages it's really relationships are damaged right. how can we inter- like intercept before that time absolutely so so here's here's what I'll, here's what I'll say I'll say, you know, we can run, but we cannot hide. And what I mean by that is that the conflict won't go away. So, you know, I always talk about dealing with things when they're small dots become, before they become these big explosions that we call either harassment complaints or, uh, or lawsuits or work safe complaints. All of those complaints, the big, messy, um, tragic investigations that many of us do, they all began with... Uh, behavior that was unacceptable, a statement that was disrespectful, or a disagreement that happened between two people one day in the workplace. They all, all of them began that way. And then what happened was we talked ourselves out of it, or we were talked out of it. And we are in a culture of avoidance where perhaps if we pretend it doesn't exist, it'll just go away, whatever, whatever that might be. Um, And and it doesn't. So I, I have to convince your listeners that when you are haunted by a behavior that's happening or an experience of feeling disrespected or knowing that you're in conflict with someone, when you're haunted by that, when you're wondering whether they're going to be at a meeting, whether you're checking to see whether an attendee on a, on a, on a virtual uh, call, when you are now coming back to the office and you're checking the parking lot, like you're like, Ugh. when you see their email, and you're like, oh, do I open it up today? And you're like cringing and you put your armor on and you're ready. Like those are things that you cannot ignore because they are only going to get worse. And they're going to get worse for you in terms of personal damage. The more you hold on to unresolved conflict, you can really get sick. It can affect your profession. The more you hold on to unresolved conflict, you're going to be distracted. Um, you're going to make errors. You're going to um, have low productivity. You're going to now start having issues in the workplace with your boss. Like it, that's going to be an issue. And then, you know, again, if we don't do anything, it's going to be a situation where, honestly, the the, the best people will leave workplaces because they can, and the rest of the people will be forced to leave the workplace because they just get too sick to stay. And so when we talk about all of this quiet quitting and we talk about staffing issues and, you know, I I think it really comes down to the fact that we have to have cultures and leaders who embrace early and effective conflict resolution, and who have the courage and the tools to hold people accountable for behaviors as soon as they arise. Time is not our friend when it comes to conflict and dysfunction. Time only makes things worse. And so read the guide. It gives you tips and tricks on having those conversations, on getting support through those conversations, and understand that I am not suggesting this is easy I'm suggesting that there is no other option, that if you don't choose this option, 
the option down the road of an investigation or an arbitration or hospitalization, that's far, far more damaging for the people who are involved. We've, we've got to start seeing this as a necessity, not as an option when it comes to healthy workplaces. Well, Marley, I'm sure our listeners want to know how to get a copy of your guide. Um, how can they do that? So what they can do is just come onto my website, which has actually a number of different resources. So if they go on to www.themirrormethod.ca, um, and then they go into the section on resources, it has um, the mirror method, the mirror method workbook, and then walking on eggshells. And um, it's easy to order if people want a soft cover book, but really there's also um, a downloadable PDF that they can get. Um, instantly. So we're doing whatever we can because I, I really believe that um, people are hungry for learning how to make their lives better through the resolution of conflict. Well, thank you so much, Marley, for being our guest again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Love talking to uh, both of you. Thank, thank you. See you next time.